0: Welcome to episode 25 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. (laughs) Um, And uh, in this episode, rather, we will be pitting more things against each other to decide which we would keep. In the first half, we'll be looking um, at film adaptations, to adapt or not to adapt, as Hamlet almost once said. Um, (laughs) And in the second half, we'll be looking at two novels by Elizabeth Bowen, uh, The House in Paris and To the North. Uh, But firstly, Rachel, how are you?
1: I'm all right, thanks. I'm back at school, which is a bit sad. Yeah. The over.
0: Do you find that people who aren't teachers are very sympathetic?
1: <laughs> yeah, no one cares. <laughs> and um, what also makes me sad is that it's still really hot. Oh, is it? not been- But it, it is in London, yeah. and I can't enjoy it.
0: We've just had a lot of rain here. Oh, really? Yeah
1: in london it's always sunny simon oh is that
0: right <laughs> it always seems to be foggy when i'm not foggy cloudy it always seems to be cloudy when i'm there
1: yeah well you know it only comes out for people who love it
0: <laughs> i think it's just a cloud over my mind when i'm in london although i am going on tuesday actually for london um to see the dover road by aml which someone has is putting on the stage which is very exciting I'm very sad I couldn't join you for that. Yes, it was sad, because I was hoping you'd be able to. Um, and it's in a theatre I'd never heard of, and I now can't remember the name of, but I've put it in the notes, um, which is in a converted changing room or something. Converted
1: changing room? Something like
0: that. It's it's in Piccadilly Circus or Leicester Square or something. I need to find out where it is. But it's somewhere very central. It only seats 70, and it's in one of these doors that looks like it's going to go to some sort of dodgy club, but actually apparently goes to a theatre. <laughs> Unless it is just...
1: Oh, it's not at the Charing Cross Road, is it?
0: It might be around there. It's called the Gerald Theatre or something like that.
1: No, oh, because I keep walking past a place right next to Foyles that looks very dodgy and always has a queue of people outside. It's like a <laughs> pop up theatre. I'm hoping it's a pop-up yeah, so
0: I I pop up theatre. If I'm outside a pop up theatre, I'm going to find myself in an adult bookstore or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I think A.M. Melton probably is the wrong person for that for that bookstore. <laughs> But, yes, I promised Rachel that if I love it, then I'll go back again at the end of the run, which is about a month from now. <laughs> so we'll see. Yeah, well,
1: I would like to see it, actually. It was, you know, it's just a coincidence that I've happened to book theatre for the same night, so there we are.
0: I know. Guess what you're seeing.
1: Well, Simon, very fittingly for tonight's discussion, I'm seeing Pride and Prejudice.
0: Ah, lovely.
1: <laughs> at the Regent's Park Open Air Theatre. Luckily, on the day that's going to be the hottest in recorded history in September or something ridiculous.
0: Oh, it is indeed always sunny. I'm glad that I'll be inside what is presumably an airless (laughs) (laughs) theatre. And the train journey will be a delight, I'm sure.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, So presumably school means you're reading less than you were, but what are you reading at the moment?
1: Well, actually, I've just finished The French Lieutenant's Woman, which was enormous Um, and very heavy to carry on the tube because I only had a hardback. Um, But it was amazing. Is it
0: good? (laughs) No, I have I have witnessed my mother reenacting the um, <laughs> the cape the the caped woman looking out over the over the sea in Lyme Regis. Ah, at the same time, at the same time, we reenacted Marianne uh, jumping off the cob from Persuasion, um, slightly too well in that I did manage not to catch seventy year old Alma jumping off the Cobb. <laughs> <So, laughs> Um, this is how I entertain myself in my spare time, it seems. Yeah, well. Um, is is it um, an English book or an American book?
1: It's written, um, but no, he's English. I'm sure he's English. In yeah, which case, is... I'm
0: going to pick you up on having said lieutenant rather than lieutenant.
1: I'm sorry, did I say that wrong?
0: You said it the American way, not the English way. Oh, I didn't know
1: there was an English
0: so, way. To yes, we, we say lieutenant, they say lieutenant.
1: Well, well, I'm going to blame my one year in America for that, <laughs> not my general ignorance. <laughs> yes, not
0: your 29 years in England.
1: <laughs> we'll ignore those. <laughs>
0: uh, well, you don't even to lieutenants in day-to-day life, do you?
1: No, you don't, to be fair. I'm not really a military type. <laughs> it was a very interesting reading experience, and not at all what I'd expected, actually. Is it moving? No, I wouldn't say it was because it's one of those things where it's written, um, so you know it's a book the whole way through. It's like the, the narrator comes in and pretend in and it's, you know, the narrator's telling the story, and then it's like, well, guys, you know, obviously, you know that in 1969 we do this, but in 1869 they would have done this, and, you know, it's, it's all very postmodern, but really good and okay. very for my Victorian research because it includes lots of stuff that I've just learned about from reading that huge book I told you about last time. Oh, I was yes. like, I totally know all of these Victorian facts. <laughs> this is great. And I'm just glad I'd read it afterwards because if I hadn't have done I would not would have been quite pleased. So I thought it was great. It's a bit of a commitment because it is very long but it's, really, I found it really enjoyable reading. The kind of book that's written for awards, but is actually good. Do you know what I mean? Okay.
0: I, for some reason, I've always thought it was it lent on the sort of like trashy romantic side. So. No!
1: Read really doesn't in the slightest, and it's kind of infuriating um, when you finish it, but infuriating in a good way. Okay. Yeah, I, I really do recommend it. I thought it was fabulous.
0: Hmm. Great. Uh, I, the, Because, you know, when you've got over a thousand unread books, you just have to go and read something that you've borrowed from your brother. I'm reading... i have nearly finished. Um, So You've Been Publicly Shamed by John Ronson. Have you come across that? I haven't, no. So he's written quite a few intriguing books, um, none of which I've read, actually, but including sounding books, um, (laughs) (laughs) like The Psychopath Test... No, Sociopath Test? One of them. Um, The Men Who Stare at Goats. He basically writes about... Quite a lot about actually, they are quite all quite different, I guess. But the non fiction, this particular one is about public shamings on the internet. So, okay. yeah, looking at sort of the aftermath of you know, when people decide that someone said something inappropriate on Twitter and there's a big pile on, or when someone yeah, you yeah. know gets in the tabloids or whatever. Um, so partly, partly, it's all about like the history of shaming quite briefly, but then it's about interviewing these people and finding what happened to them afterwards and, and how they did, or did not recover from it, etc. It's sounds really interesting it's really interesting it's, it's, he's very journalistic in the way he writes it feels like a sort of very extended feature <laughs> from a newspaper really um, but in, in both a good and a bad way I guess but, um, but it is definitely very interesting he's quite witty and quite empathetic and yeah I've raced through it I, I've read it in a, a few days and I've got oh. a few of his other ones on which I forgot including The Sociopath Test um, and The Monistar Gates so, so um, yeah the other book I'm reading which is rather different is um to the River by Olivia Lang. I can't remember if I've talked about that on the podcast before, but um, it's um, not, again, non-fiction. It's uh, about Virginia Woolf, tangentially, in that she is walking the ooze. Um, yes. And so inspired by, and tried to go there by, obviously, Virginia Woolf drowning herself in it. And the title is, a, is a Take On To The Lighthouse. But she also goes off do basically anything else that inspires her. So we've got, I've just got to the end of a section where she talks about dinosaurs um being discovered. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, it seems like, much like a river meandering, but in a lovely way.
1: That sounds very interesting.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh. Um, anyway. You want a bit of a non-fiction binge?
0: Well, I seem to be. I seem to read a lot more non-fiction than I used to as well. Um,
1: Those are the books that often get left longest, aren't they? That's
0: they are. Right. And I also find... um I don't know. I I have to be in the right mood to read certain types of novels whereas whereas non-fiction, if I'm feeling tired, I still feel like I can read a bit of it or something. I don't know. It it feels less like I need an emotional commitment to to non-fiction. That is true. (laughs) If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, And and I have been reading some fiction because I only finished To the North by Elizabeth Bowen about, well, this afternoon. (laughs) 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 Um, Yes. But... I'm gearing up for more fiction soon, partly because um the next issue of shiny books is coming up, but partly because the nineteen forty seven club is on the horizon, yeah. so starting on the tenth of october um for a week it's the next in Karen from Caxi's bookish Ramblings, and my um wait uh, wait tend to encourage lots people to read books from the same year and see what we come up with between us nineteen forty seven is the next year.
1: I will have a look on my shelf and see what I can find.
0: Please do. Um, I know that you'll have at least one book published that year because One Fine Day was published that year.
1: One Fine Day. Maybe I can just reread that.
0: Why sure. not? Why not? Such a lovely book.
1: Such a beautiful book.
0: Um, I haven't decided what I'm going to read yet. I think Sylvia of Warner wrote some short story or published a book of short stories that year. And I, as I said on the last episode, I've been meaning to read some of her short stories. So now could be the time. It could all come beautifully together.
1: Isn't
0: it just? <laughs> um, let's go straight into our next topic then, or indeed our first topic. <laughs> um, we did sort of talk about adaptation back in a very early episode where we talked about Charles Dickens on stage and page. No, screen yeah. and page. Screen and page. Sadly unrhyming. I've <laughs> never seen Dickens on the stage, so... <laughs> no. to say that. Um But more broadly, you want to talk about... Whether we do or do not want our favourite books to be adapted, or, or, um, and then I guess more broadly our experience with adaptations, um, what are your what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I very much enjoy actually seeing my favourite books adapted, but I think more often than not, I'm I'm disappointed by them when I get to the end, because obviously we all have in our minds our perfect characters and what we think they look like and what they would sound like, and I think also our interpretations of the characters, because obviously even though we've got them on the page for us and their speech and everything written, you still have an expectation of their emotional depth and their um, past and what how you think that they would behave outside of the world of the novel. And um, in particular, I remember when the um, Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden version of Pride and
0: Prejudice oh. cinema, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I just thought, who on earth was advising on Mr. Darcy here? Because this is ridiculous. It's, um,
0: it's one of the few times in the cinema that I have shouted out loud <laughs> 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 I shouted shouted the word no at the cinema at the screen at one point. Which in fact was not necessarily, was not directly connected with his portrayal, which was terrible, but with um there's a point where Lizzie asks Darcy to dance. There's this thing. No, no, it would not have so happened. It's
1: starkly inaccurate.
0: Yes, yeah. uh, yeah, so I, 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 he was sort of like a damp Heathcliff. <laughs>
1: so <laughs> damp. I just thought, for goodness sake, he didn't walk around with a face like a slapped ass the whole time, honestly.
0: <laughs> and why is this proposal happening in the rain outside? <laughs>
1: yes, and why are there chickens in the house? Yes, what
0: and, about? Why does Mr. Bennett have a Canadian accent?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so many questions.
0: <laughs> Such a terrible why did Kira Knightley get nominated for an Oscar for
1: It's all politics, yeah. do you know what I mean?
0: Why would you try and improve on the un- unimprovable honourable, that's a word, um, 1995 adaptation?
1: I know, and that's what I was going to say next. Is Now that, for me, is Pride and Prejudice.
0: Mm. And
1: I will happily watch all six episodes of that time and time again. Because it is, all the characters are exactly as I imagined... I think the way that they do the setting is very good because I don't understand this whole um, desire to make up the Bennets out to be living in poverty the whole time that people seem. This, I don't know where this idea comes from.
0: Yes, because they, they they talk about beggars not being able to be choosers in the novel, don't they? And it's, I don't know if Jane Austen's deliberately. She's usually pretty deliberate about everything, so probably but you're meant to think they're not as poor as they think they are. <laughs> I mean, they're surrounded by all these people who are much poorer than them. So maybe he just took them at their word and thought, oh, they must have a pig wandering through the living room.
1: <laughs> I mean, I just thought this is ridiculous. They've got servants. They're fine. Like, this, I don't understand this. Um, but the one that the, in Pride and Prejudice, obviously, aside from the whole lake thing, which wasn't in the book, but we all know that works very well indeed for us ladies. So, you know, it was I just thought it's wonderful. And also <laughs> honorable mention, R.I.P., Alan, Rickman who was wonderful in the other excellent adaptation of Jane Austen's novel Sense of Sensibility.
0: Yes um, it was brilliant yes. Yeah. I have talked about on my blog form possibly on here the fact that I don't ever visualize characters when I'm reading or visualize settings or anything like that. No. Um, so I've never been in the situation where I see a character and think that doesn't look like how I visualising him I don't and in fact sometimes you know you see like all those characters blonde and they should be red haired or something i will yeah. forget what color a person's hair is in a work unless it's you know a huge part of their character um yeah. so that bit never bothers me but as you but what you say the sort of emotional construction of the character or what they how they behave that that obviously resonates a lot and so that's the times when i can will get disappointed perhaps i think if we're saying of jane austen even worse i think than the film, Fanny film, was the I think it was a TV adaptation of Mansfield Park with Billy Piper. Oh. Did you ever see that? yes <laughs> No, she, I'm sure she's a great actress. Well, at least a, a serviceable actress, but she, Fanny Price, she is not. <laughs> no. And in fact, the Francis O'Connor in Mansfield Park was equally bad. In that, for some reason, they decided that Fanny Price was Jane Austen, and they read sections of Jane Austen's History of England aloud as though Fanny had written them.
1: Very odd. And to be frank, I mean, who even wants to watch Mansfield Park? I can barely... <laughs> I,
0: I, I, I shouldn't have it. brought up its name, should I realise. <laughs>
1: um, I do think also, Um, I don't think Persuasion has been given enough attention when it comes to adaptations. The one with Sally Hawkins mm. in is very good. I thought it was good, um,
0: yeah.
1: But I do think it's probably her most emotionally sensitive and emotionally rich novel and i'm surprised that it hasn't been something that people have wanted to do more often i think it'd make a wonderful hollywood film with you know actual english actors in it that's something that annoys me very much when american people play english people though i have to say that gwyneth paltrow does an excellent english accent and i thought she was very good as emma
0: she was very good as emma um yes i i like in fact both adaptations of emma which both came out in the same year i believe
1: Yes, I do think both of them are very good. I did enjoy them very much. And also the TV version as well with Romola Gary. She's was, I thought she was very good as Emma.
0: Uh, that one annoyed me because I thought the dialogue was very anachronistic. But
1: Well, I, yeah,
0: I love Johnny Lee Miller, so... Well, yes, you were willing to overlook a module of sins, I'm sure. Johnny <laughs> um, Lee Miller, was, I believe was the right age to play Nightly, looked so much younger than that that it, I didn't feel like it worked. <laughs> but, yeah. This is them. this is because of my prejudice against the nightly Emma pairing and the fact that I think it's slightly creepy. <laughs> let's not
1: get into that. Let's Sorry. not.
0: Let's not fight. Um, I think one issue I, in term, which may, maybe separates the Austin adaptations from the other things we might discuss today for me is that uh, certainly with Sense and Sensibility and Pride and Prejudice and I think Emma, I saw the film or TV series before I read the books, which does change a lot about how I think about them as adaptations
1: yeah I think for me um, I always try and avoid seeing a, the adaptation of something before I've read it I always like to have read it first because otherwise it colours everything
0: yeah I certainly do now fact, um, I was listening to my brother's podcast the seat set of movies anyone interested in movies if you give a listen um, and um, he was talking about adaptations of young adult not, um, fiction um, he did at one point say that fi- the film is always better than the book, which he, he did say just to rile me. So, in return, <laughs> say the book is always better than the film, column But, um, but he, um, yes, his, his co-host, Izan, did talk about how he'd bought a book to read just because he thought the film was terrible and he thought maybe the book would be better or, or vice versa or something. But, um, I do always want to if I want to have a primary interpretation in my head of what of the story and of the characters, I want that to be the first one, so, which almost always is the is the book. Yeah. There's rare cases where there's been a novelisation of a film; I'd watch the film first. But I think I have read maybe one novelisation of a film in my life. Um, it was High School Musical: The Book, <laughs> <laughs> which I read as a basically as a bet. <laughs> it was terrible.
1: <laughs> I can imagine.
0: Yes. Oh, they did used to read the Sabrina the Teenage Witch and Sister Sister novel spin-offs. So...
1: Simon, you never cease to amaze.
0: <laughs> the number of times I should just go hand in my PhD just alarms me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, they were terrible.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I think there's a difference as well between the sorts of quality of the books you read. So, for example, you know, I do love a bit of trash when it comes to films. Um, and I have watched the Hunger Games films and I thought they were great and better than the books, I might add, because I have also read the books. Um, <laughs> so I did that as part of my job, obviously, as a teacher. I have Gosh. to read, kids are reading. Um, and so I did, you know, those sorts of, and other Harry Potter films, um, let's get aside from the terrible acting, they're <laughs> from the children, the adults are great. Um, I think that they capture the books wonderfully, and actually, I would prefer watching them to rereading the books. I've never actually reread the books because oh, I, really? I read them as they came out. So um, I didn't read them for the writing; I was reading them purely for the story. And when I grew up, well, you and I were the same age as Harry Potter when they came out, pretty much. Yeah. We're, we're so um, it was kind of read it all in a rush, and then watching the films brought the story back to me. And I would watch them again. And I like watching the, because, you know, I'd imagined what it was like. But then when I actually watched the films, it was kind of, it brought, it did bring my imagination to life. And I think they do it in a really nice and sensitive way. Um, So I really enjoyed those. But when it comes to my favourite adult novels, I suppose I feel a bit more precious about them. and, And especially ones that are historical or that I think, you know, shouldn't be sexed up or, made out to be more sensational than the author intended you know people like Bronte and Austin and Dickens and things it's like do we really have to insert all this kind of stuff in here or modernize the language I don't like it when they do that um I think if you're going to do an adaptation then do it sensitively or don't bother um I do think actually the modern books is I don't I don't watch many of those but I did think the Wolf Hall one was excellent
0: Hmm.
1: But I watched that before I read the book. Actually, that was a rare, ah. um, and I did that on purpose because I knew I was going to find the book hard to get into. And actually, reading the book after watching it, I I thought this is. I'm so glad I've watched it because now I can. I knew the story, so I could follow it much better. Because it is a bit confusing with everyone being called Thomas. Literally everyone.
0: <laughs> yes, fair enough. Um, to go back a bit to what you were, um in what you were saying um, about. The types of film you like and the types of books you like. I, I noted this down because I, I do love, um, a trashy film every now and then and, you know, a bad sitcom or whatever. Um, I don't, I don't love bad books particularly. Yeah. I can't think, I, I certainly would not relax with a trashy novel in the way that I would relax, relax with a trashy film because I still prefer a good novel, um, yeah. without going into what those may or may not be. And that's been interesting when it's been like a film that's adapted from a book w- where the film is on a level I've quite happily watched and the, and the book isn't. And it, this isn't quite fair, actually, because the, the one I was thinking of was um, The Devil Wears Prada. Which, oh, that's
1: a great film. Which
0: I love, and it's not really a trashy film, I guess. It, in fact, got an Oscar nomination for Meryl Streep, who is being, turning out to be the... Yeah, yeah she, didn't, she didn't win, but it was quite a surprise nomination. Um, and I loved that film. And afterwards, I went and read the book by, I think, Lauren Weisberger or something like that.
1: Yeah, uh, I can
0: see and it was so terrible <laughs> that it, it did um I did make it to the end, but it was it was really badly written, it was obviously just a throwaway novel. And it was interesting to think like it, it sort of challenges partly my I the book is always better <laughs> preconception, but also what do I think about adaptations when it is when you can turn a, a book that I won't care about at all into a film that actually I really enjoy, can really enjoy? Interesting.
1: Well I think it's about the time that you spend as well because for me I don't mind wasting a couple of hours on a trashy film but if I'm spending four hours reading a trashy book I feel like that's a really long time wasted and I think also what well, we're prepared to we have different expectations when we come to films and books don't we I mean you know if you're going to watch a film called The Devil Wears Prada you're like yeah it's going to be a bit trashy it's going to be enjoyable I'm probably going to cry a little bit it's going to be great um <laughs> and, you know it's, it's it's, it does what it says on the tin and I think you're more prepared to accept that in a film than you are in a book because I'm not remotely snobby about films yeah. um, as I am about books and I don't really know why. I mean, whereas some people are like really purists when it comes to films and they'll only watch something that's, you know, black and white and has got Czech subtitles. <laughs> um,
0: I need my but, Czech subtitles. For
1: sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if it came to books, they'd be, you know, they wouldn't care. So I think it depends also on your attitude towards film. You know, I'm not fussed. As long as it's entertaining, I'll watch it.
0: And I think probably with, with both of us and probably with a lot of people listening to this, that's because we know quite a lot about books and maybe don't know that much about film. Well, um, quite a Yes, yeah. I don't want to talk speak for everyone who's, who's listening because we probably have film experts listening. Um, but yes, I, 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 I do also enjoy what I perceive to be good films, but also certainly on a technical level, I don't know what makes a film good.
1: No, um, what I'm saying it's, I'm like, oh, that's beautiful, but I don't know how they've done it.
0: Or yeah, whereas with writing, I I feel like often I can say why a sentence or is good or is bad or something. Yeah. not quite that clinically, but you know what I mean. Like I yeah, no, absolutely.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, which makes me certainly yes, more fu- more fussy with with books. Um, yeah,
1: <laughs> I think when it comes to adaptations, um, I think it's it doesn't matter. You know, the type of book is obviously going to be appealing to different types of audiences. So, for example, The Devil Wears Prada, that's going to be watched by people who don't even know it's a book.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: Whereas then you have the Harry Potter series, which is obviously was made because people wanted their favourite books to come to life. So that's a different, that's just, and also I would say the same for Lord of the Rings, for example, you know, which I did enjoy reading the books, but. I didn't enjoy, you know, a million hours of (laughs) of people tramping across New Zealand, which is a beautiful country, but I didn't need to see it for as long as I did. (laughs) Um, So that for me, that didn't really appeal to me. Um, But when it comes to, I think, stuff like Jane Austen or the classics, people who watch it tend to watch it because they, they love the books and they feel really invested in the characters um, and I think that's where you get people becoming disappointed and angry and, you know, online message boards going crazy because <laughs> people think, you know, people have very set ideas of what these people should be like. And they are actually very offended if those those people aren't as they expected. Um, and I think quite a lot of people felt quite strongly about the Harry Potter films, for example, that particular characters were miscast and, um, weren't as they imagined and I think actually there was a character that I felt was really miscast and that quite ruined the, one of the films for me um, I can't remember who it was I think it might have been Lupin I thought was was not at all how I'd imagined him or Sirius Black wasn't at all how I imagined him either mm. and I was a bit like oh that's disappointing because now I feel like I've got to sit here watching something that's not what I thought it would be and that bothers me um, because I felt emotionally invested in those characters that bothered me um, whereas in the Hunger Games, I was like, oh, these characters aren't like what I thought. But I didn't really care because I wasn't that bothered. <laughs> um, I just like was just enjoying being entertained by it. Um, and with books that I know at like, the back of my hand, say so, like Jane Austen novels or anything like that, I would will be annoyed if I don't feel that the characters are doing what I I think they should be doing. And that, and that would ruin the film for me. So for me, like to adapt or not to adapt is all about, you know, how desperately passionate I feel about how a character should be or a book should be and if you mess with favourite characters then I I won't be happy.
0: Yeah I think that's definitely fair enough um, and I think uh, so much to yourself I need to try and work out what, what I think I was going to respond to. I've should go on the record first of saying that like, I love the Harry Potter books and have read those many times but the films I watched them all but I think partly Daniel Eichler's acting being so bad for at least <laughs> the first five just like put me off completely. I mean,
1: that's still like, wooden.
0: Yeah. The idea that you've hired like Maggie Smith and Alan Rickman and Michael Gambon and all, all these great British actors and you've got some, some kid at the front being like, I'm a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like, I think it's the only thing he said for the first four films. But, um, yes. Yeah, so, so that was interesting because I besottedly loved the books when I was, uh, when the fir- first three or four came out. Um, I still very much enjoyed them, but I don't reread them as much as I used to, certainly. Um, but yeah, so what are you saying about not always knowing that, um, the thing you're seeing is a book? I think that has often happened to me, particularly with films that I didn't know much about before I saw them. Like things like Thank You for Smoking, I saw. In fact, The Many stare at Goats, which I talked about earlier. It's only when I later see them in a bookshop, I think, oh, I feel bad now, because if I'd known it was a book, um, I'd have tried to read the book first. <laughs> yeah. And there are some things, like, I quite wanted to see the film Submarine a while ago. I wanted to wait until I read the book by uh, Joe Dunthorne, um, which has never quite made it to the top of my reading power, unless I've never seen the film. <laughs> so, um, in fact, it's a film that I saw. The tr- saw I was talking about it with a friend, and thought, All right, actually, yeah, I thought, actually, I quite like to see that, and then realised the only thing I knew about it was that the two main characters had fringes. In <laughs> fact, that's enough for me to be like, ooh, sounds like it'll probably be a good one. <laughs> I, think I just assumed it would have to be a good indie film if they both had fringes <laughs> yeah um let's look at this from the other angle for a second um what are your favorite films so and are they adaptations
1: oh that's a very wide question um oh I can't, well do you know what actually my favorite films and this is you know the trash the kind of stuff that I would watch again and again and again I love the Bridget James's Diary film.
0: Ah. And
1: I'm obviously wetting myself with excitement that there's another one coming out very shortly.
0: Are you including the second film in this? Yes. The second racist film?
1: It's brilliant. Okay? It's, it's,
0: the second film is so bad, Rachel.
1: I just love it.
0: <laughs> I mean, I love the first one. I really love the first one.
1: I won't hear a word again. <laughs> um, I think they're amazing, but I've tried to um, read the books couldn't get on with them at all so i've never actually read the books i don't think they're faithful to the books or not but i think they're hilarious films and i think you do have to be a woman to understand that you know this is life i'm afraid this is what it's like to be a woman if you watch Bridget and <laughs> understand everything about women
0: i mean firstly that's nonsense. secondly i have <laughs> <laughs> i i do i really love the first film but that, i mean what's it like as a woman being in a in an east asian jail rachel please do tell me so, so I assume it's nothing at all like the portrayal well, they gave in the film.
1: Yes, absolutely. But at the same time, it's still very humorous.
0: <laughs> slash racist. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, anyway, I will I will be going and seeing the third film, although I did not read the third book, actually. I Because I, I didn't particularly like the second book either. Although I do really like the first Richard Jones book. Um, having said that, I've not read it since I was about 16. Um, but it felt very much to me like The Provincial Lady of Its Day, which was... Um,
1: yeah. I think I couldn't get on with the diary format. I found it a bit too bitty, you
0: know. Uh, whereas I do love a diary format. Mm. Um, well, so that is an adaptation, even if you've not read the book. <laughs> yep. um, my favourite film um, is The Hours, um, which I is love a film. lovely film, which I did watch before I read the book, actually. Um, indeed, before I read Mrs. Dalloway. I watched it and then I read Mrs. Dalloway and then I read The Hours by Michael Cunningham. Um and I think it's just a wonderful adaptation and a wonderful novel. Um yes. it's just and it's it's a very clever adaptation because the novel uh, the, I'll just briefly explain it because I don't think we've talked about the hours before at any great length. We probably have. Yeah. <laughs> um but it's um looks at three different women, one of whom is Virginia Woolf, writing sister Dalloway, one of whom is um Laura in the sixties, fifties, sixties, um reading Mrs. Dalloway, and one of them is Again, Meryl Streep, um, playing Teresa, whose life is very much like Mr. Dalloway's. Uh, and as I say all that, I feel like I have said it on the podcast before. Forgive me, everyone. <laughs> um, but in the novel, they obviously separate in different chapters, whereas the film brings their lives together much more, um, there's much less distance. So you'll, I, you'll see like shots of all three of them within the same sort of minute rather than spreading it out a lot. And I think it works really, really well. In fact, in some ways, it's better. It's a, It's a device that it's easier to get across on film than in a, in a book, I would imagine.
1: Yeah. I think for me, the, the film was so atmospheric and it really brought to life those really different periods and different places in different women's lives in a way perhaps that the book couldn't because it's not a visual medium, obviously. And I, mm. that was, yeah. I mean, I think, all and also the soundtrack is amazing.
0: Yes. It's, love it.
1: Really good. Um, I think um, talking about doing things differently, something that I was quite surprised by, because I'm quite a purist with these things, was when I watched the Michael Fassbender version of Jane Eyre. Hmm. Um, and they completely changed the order of, of the book. Have you seen it?
0: I have, although I don't remember much about it, other than, of course, Judy Dent.
1: Yes. <laughs> you cannot do an Northern accent, bless her heart.
0: <laughs> How dare you. <laughs> I'm just <so> <laughs> she so can do no wrong and you know it. <laughs> I
1: should have mentioned anything. Um, it starts with Jane leaving Thornfield after the disastrous aborted wedding.
0: Oh it does doesn't it? Yeah.
1: And then she's on the moors and then it sort of goes back in time and I thought that was actually really effective because I do think that starting in medias res with that kind of story is quite good because the beginning bit does is a bit preachy and does drag for a, a long sort of a long way um and I do think it's better coming into the middle of it, it makes the focus more on the two of them and I think especially if you 're trying to reach an audience of people who perhaps haven't read the book, it makes it better i mean i don't, I love dana i don't think it's a perfect book. I mean the whole syngent thing is ridiculous, but um <laughs> Um, Yes. Well, (laughs) the less said about that, the better. But I think because I did expect when I started watching it, I was like, "What is this? What's going on? Um, Why is why have we started here?" And then I was prepared to be outraged. And then I watched after watching the whole thing, I thought that was actually a very good decision, and it made the film much more powerful because it kind of the whole her whole life was um, bookended really by her relationship with him, and I just thought that was really clever.
0: My chief recollection of seeing it is that it was in a cinema that was violently overheated <laughs> the entire time wanting to get out because it was so hot.
1: <laughs> I saw it in New York and was one of the first people to see it. We were at festival. Mm, wow. Very exciting. And they were like, yeah, we don't think really that we're going to put this on general release because we don't think it's going to appeal to many people. I was like, hello, Michael Fassbender playing Rochester. <laughs> I don't think this is going to appeal to many people.
0: Judy <laughs> <Doody> Dent. Um... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um Speaking of Jay now, can you on a brief tangent? For a book that actually I think would we'll make a very good film, um, have you read The Air Affair by Jasper Ford? No. Um, I have had it on myself for about eight, nine years, and I read it last month, and it's. Um, it's. Well, it's it's set in this future where everyone is obsessed with books, and this sort of books are the, are the main popular culture thing, which is lovely. Um, but. Long, well, part of a very long story is, um, and the bit they write on the blurb, even though it doesn't actually happen until almost at the end, is that there's this evil person who's been kidnapping people from books and changing the endings or something. Oh. Uh, he's kidnapped Jane Eyre. Um, and in the world before this, this happens, Jane Eyre is published and ends with her going off with Syndrome. Oh. Um, and that's sort of accepted and it's only after Thursday next who's the, who's the main character who intervenes that it goes back in inverted commas the right way Um which didn't work that well for people like me who think that she'd be better off with St. John than Rochester and better off but preferably with neither of them <laughs> 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 but um yes she didn't have my sympathies there It's was like just just leave them both just go and become a school teacher somewhere <laughs> or find a man who's not in some way insane <laughs>
1: I'm not getting
0: into this with you. <laughs> no, you're probably you're very wise.
1: This could get messy. But so, um, you think that would make a good film? And it hasn't think, been adapted.
0: I don't think it has been made. It has I don't think it's been made a film for yet. I think it would make a very good film. I don't think it was a very good book. Uh, I was quite disappointed by how little. Well, I th- I loved so many ideas in it because there's, there's this guy who's a quirky inventor and he does lots of fun literary inventions. and There's lots of great references. But in general, I just found it quite tedious. It was quite a dull book, I thought. Right. Um, which is a shame because there's so many great ingredients in it. But I think... It would
1: an, probably inf- be brought out well in a film.
0: I think so. And I think it would also be um, a lot pacier in a film. Um, I mean, it could have been a pacier novel, I guess, if they'd made it much shorter. But um, they just preferred. But yes, yeah, so and it felt quite filmic. There were lots of details that I think would would work very well visually. Um, are there any um, books that you think would make great films that haven't been made into films?
1: Yeah, I think, I was just thinking about this. I would love to see the Gilead trilogy, trilogy made into uh, Yeah. I think lots of people I've talked to about this have said, oh no, but it's kind of, it's so internal, I don't think it would work. But I really do think that a clever filmmaker could make something beautiful out of it. And I think the setting would be, I could just imagine the kind of prairies and I think it would be beautiful, and I would sit there crying for three hours, and I'd love it. <laughs> um,
0: yes, I think it would, it would be a good, like, sort of art house film or something. Yes, or, yes. Um, it was, definitely.
1: What was that awful film a few years ago with Brad Pitt in it? Did you watch it? That was like all just close-ups of stuff and people in like flowers and stuff. What was uh, that?
0: The one? Tree of Life, or something.
1: Yes, it would be.
0: Yeah, I didn't see it. Better. Okay, so we, <laughs> what a great sell I think you're right, pitch remember that awful film it could be like that <laughs> uh, well I'm sold
1: <laughs> you know what I mean
0: <laughs> Um, I bet you can get can you guess the book that I would most like to see turned into a film
1: um yes Mrs Hargraves
0: <laughs> yes and, <laughs> <laughs> of course and can you guess who I would wish to play Miss Hargraves
1: would it, actually, would it be James Judy?
0: It actually is not.
1: Maggie Smith?
0: Maggie Smith, of course. Maggie Smith. Wouldn't she be brilliant?
1: <laughs> I think that she's always been remarkable at playing eccentric people.
0: Exactly. It's sort of made for her. I think, and I think it would be brilliant. Um, well, in fact, it was made into a TV uh, film with Margaret Rutherford, um, which sadly is no longer watchable or available. That's a shame. It is. Um, and I think I maybe mentioned the other one last time we talked about, when we talked about Dickens, uh, We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. I think it would be a brilliant film. Oh, yes. and, and I believe it is being turned to a film, although it has, it's got something of a checkered history of almost being turned into films many times, I think. Oh.
1: Um,
0: so hopefully this time it will happen.
1: I do think that people, filmmakers, need to be a little bit more intrepid when it comes to choosing. If they're going to choose a book to base a film on, I get a bit frustrated that so often it's the same books being made into films again and again and again. And I don't know why it's not someone's job to kind of probe the bestseller lists of the 30s, 40s, 50s and find something a bit more interesting to do.
0: Absolutely. And because, because I think there's quite a lot of like modern books are turned into films. Yeah. But But it's when they go to costume that they just don't think about. Or the or, or they'll do like a modern historical one of like Brooklyn or something, they'll yeah. turn that into a film. Whereas as you say, there's so many they don't even have to be best selling books. I was, one of the ones I wrote down was The Ghost of Mrs. Muir and I can't right now remember who wrote it, but um that's a lovely film, although also bizarre and over the top, perhaps <laughs> of, of its time. Um but something that I wrote down like Patricia, Patricia Brent Spinster, um I think that'd be just a great sort of like knockabout fast sort of film. Like Kristen and would be great in it. But, um, I think there's all these light-hearted Edwardian novels that would be perfect. Now, I mean, like again, Miss Pettigrew is for a Day. That was great to see that turn into a film. That sort of thing, more things like that, would be lovely.
1: I think many of the Persephone list would make wonderful films.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, and then there's there's authors like. I wrote down Beryl Bainbridge I don't think any of hers have been turned into films and they seem like they'd be such good films to me. They're so, um, the characters are so sort of not over, they're slightly over the top um, and I think, you know, great parts for character actresses would be wonderful.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've just, I'm nearly finished reading my casal five books. Oh yes. um, Which are continuing to be wonderful. And they did start making a TV series but they inexplicably stopped after the second book.
0: Oh no, did you watch any of it?
1: Yeah, I did. I watched it when it first came out before I read the books and I've ordered, I bought the DVD for my mum so that she could watch and she said, oh, I don't know why they've stopped at the second book and we looked into it and apparently they commissioned the third and fourth books but then um, somehow the project just got dropped. Um, And it's a real shame because it would, I think those would make great films as well and it's, for, for most of it, they're set in wartime London so it would be great to have that kind of period detail and everything and there's such a massive array of different characters he could follow i think there's a lot of stuff like that that's neglected and what frustrates me is that it's just like the big bestsellers often young adult novels that get immediately made into films not particularly good quality just to quickly make money twilight Mm
0: -hmm.
1: hunger games divergent all that sort of thing like people come on let's you know, focus on making some nice quality adaptations of books by authors that could do with a revival, and then those books will come back into print or back into popularity certainly, and people will discover some wonderful new writers.
0: Yeah, and I think um, from—I mean, I'm not a film expert by any means—but the ones I have seen when they are a different adapted from a different novel, they seem to be so much more interesting than the ones that aren't. I think just people people who yeah, like, novelists, I just think, in general, are better plotters than a room full of scriptwriters. <laughs> like, particularly because I think most films are sort of made by committee with so many people involved that it just ends up being a bit, like, the plots aren't going to be as interesting, perhaps. No. Some, somebody who certainly knew um, the value of adapting novels into films was Alfred Hitchcock.
1: Mm-hmm. All right.
0: Um Because so many of his great films, obviously Rebecca, um, The Lady Vanishes... The birds, those things um were books originally. And he did a great job at picking things, although I don't know how obscure the things he picked were, but um <laughs>
1: <laughs> Well I think, you know, there is something about a good story that stands out, but I think also there's obviously money has to be considered and you know, people are gonna look at the name of some obscure book they've never heard of on a film poster and be like, oh, what's that all about? Um, whereas if you do another adaptation of Jane Eyre you've got a guaranteed audience haven't you so
0: that's true I think we think yeah if if our words hold any sway it's with the sort of indie filmmaking people or you know or just like you know ITB drama or BBC film or something
1: I think we'd both be very happy to act as literary consultants
0: drop us a line (laughs)
1: we'll
0: we'll be very reasonable in as much as we will charge (laughs) nothing (laughs) for (laughs) this we will pay you to allow us to do it (laughs)
1: I mean, I'm just going to do a, a, a very smooth segue here and say, you know, Elizabeth Bowen's books would make marvellous films.
0: Very nice segue. Let's segue into that after we have said... I'm, I'm just going to say that, in general, I would rather the books I love were adapted um, and see where we go rather than neglected.
1: Yeah, me too. I right love yeah. adaptation, especially when I can get cross about it.
0: <laughs> True. Win-win. So that's <laughs> the side we both are on that. Let's segue over to Elizabeth Bowen. Um and this was... Um, so after I forced Rachel to read Lolly Willows, I, I said, I'll read anything you want in return. <laughs> um, and, and the book that Rachel chose was To the North by Elizabeth Warren. Um I had previously read two Elizabeth Bowen novels, and I have a confusing history with her that continues to confuse me. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe first, though... T- Chief Bowen cheerleader Rachel should give us a quick sell on Elizabeth Bowen and and these books.
1: Okay, um, well Elizabeth Bowen, I can't remember who I have to thank. I think it might be my friend Ellen in New York. I have to thank for introducing me to Elizabeth Bowen. Um, yes, she bought. She told me about her in New York and gave me a copy of To the North, um, which I read. I was living in New York, and it was very. I think it was in the summer and I read To the North and it was like I'd been hit around the head when I got to the end. Um, I was just so amazed by how brilliant this book was and how much i have been blown away by it. And the style of her writing was absolutely beautiful. Like every sentence was so wonderful. I was like, how have I not heard of this person before? Um, And then I just went on a binge and read everything. And To the North is about... These two, I think, are they cousins? It's been a while.
0: It's this very bizarre relationship where, well, they're, they're sisters-in-law, but they're also yeah. sorry, not, um, also w- weirdly related via an aunt slash stepmother slash something, yeah. Yeah, so
1: they're kind of loosely related. In fact, you know what, you describe it because you've just read it, and then I'll...
0: True, actually, yes, and you... Oops, sorry, that's my mic falling over. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, the, the House in Paris is very hazy with me, so i need you to go for that. Yeah. But yes, To the North is... Um, the main characters are Cecilia, Cecilia, let's say her name's Cecilia, Um, and Emmeline. Um, Cecilia is a widow. She was only married for a year to Emmeline's brother, Henry. Um, She bumps into, or or meets a man called Marky on a train on the way back from living abroad for that year. Um, And he enters her sort of social circle. Um, And it's sort of like a a sort of false suggestion from Bowen, because you think, oh, these people are going to end up forming a romance. In fact it's Marky and Emmeline who form a romance, whilst Cecilia is involved with a guy called Julian. In terms of plot, not that much really happens. It's more just sort of the development of those two relationships, um and ha- and how other people deal with it. What is so striking about it is the way that Bowen talks about um, although well, she, the way that she shows people's behaviour and the way that she depicts just ordinary scenes in a way that is quite astonishingly, um, insightful and sort of unsettling in how perceptive it is in some ways. Um, in the background there are various other comic characters like Lady Waters who is the relative they have in common, um, weird, in weird distant ways, whose life is basically meddling in other people's lives in the name of attempting to make things better but actually making things much worse. Um, but yes, more about her later. That's
1: to the finale. I'm desperate to know what you thought of the book.
0: Should we go straight into that? Well, I'll give you a bit of background, actually, and then you can talk about the house in Paris. Okay. Um, so the first book I read by Bone was The Last September, um, maybe eight years ago, um, and I found it really boring. Um, it's, all, it's all about the Irish troubles, the previous Irish troubles, um, and I, I think because i have been expecting a sort of you know, cosy 30s domestic novel or whatever. Yeah. I, the fact that I had to really struggle to get into it put me off. Um, and I'd sort of written Berenoff, um until Darlene challenged me to read another one and she said in return that she would read an Ivy Quantum Burnett novel. <laughs> so she read *Man Servant and *Maid Servant, which incidentally was published in 1947, for anyone looking for a 1947 club. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I said I'd read The House in Paris. Um, and I thought it was really, really brilliantly written. And Darlene successfully converted me. Um, with this, with, to so the north, it was this weird thing, which looking back, I think is also probably true of what I've heard about the House in Paris, though because it was much more of a success in the previous novel, I sort of overlooked it. Um, in that I'm reading it thinking this is so well written. It's, it's r- just amazing writing. Um, but, bes- And there were large periods of times where I was feeling that and I was connecting with it in those times and thinking, gosh, this is just amazing. Then there were lots of other times where I was thinking, this is amazing and I can't connect with it. I just feel like I'm admiring it, but I'm not getting below the surface somehow. I'm just sort of skating across just seeing how fine the writing is. And there's a weird thing, the the way that I thought about it myself and I don't know um, anyone who (laughs) listens to this who wears glasses but isn't (laughs) that badly... Short sighted well may get this in that sometimes I get a book where the font isn't quite large large enough for me to read without glasses and isn't quite small enough for me to want to wear my glasses to read it and either way I feel like I'm not quite reading it at the right size or it's not quite working for my eyes and that's how I feel with Elizabeth Bowen in that I'm not quite getting it I'm getting the meat I get yeah there's a sort of disconnect that means that I th- I think she is one of the best writers. I've read in terms of a scene by scene how she describes people how she describes what's going on and i, I wish i'd written some down but just but just the way she t- talks about conversation and what people are doing during a conversation with their hands or with their eyes or it's just it's just amazing but i finish it thinking i don't know if i want to read another one anytime soon does that make any sort of sense
1: <laughs> i think the thing is with her writing is that she's deliberately very obtuse and she makes you as a reader work very hard because oh, none of her characters ever say what they mean. So mm-hmm. you have to read everything in their body language and you're always having to dig beneath the surface of the conversations. Um, friends and relations is the worst for that. Because I spent the whole novel being like, oh, is the, are these two having some kind of a thing? I don't really know. And then you get, you're like, oh, they took were well the whole way through. But it was because everything, because all of her characters are so buttoned up as people. The thing they mm. say is kind of layered with not wanting to say how they really feel. So you're kind of a bit lost the whole way through. But then at the same time, if you are a careful reader, then you do discover many layers between them. And that's what I felt about um, To the North. And I could tell that it was going to be a horrible ending. And the whole way through, I was like, this is not going to end well. This will not end well. And I thought Emmeline was drawn so tragically towards Markie, um, and
0: Who is a singularly repellent person. Yes. And I, <laughs> in fact, so. almost everyone in it is fairly obnoxious. And that doesn't bother me in a book, that's fine. But um, it's this it's weird situation where not only do I not like Emmeline or, or Marky, there doesn't seem to be a single moment where they like each other, despite the fact that they need to see each other all the time and they're supposedly in love with each other they just seem to hate each other
1: (laughs) yeah it's interesting isn't it they have this kind of um, I suppose I suppose it's just it's it's a sexual relationship more than anything else and
0: that and that was I can't remember what, what I did I even worked out what year it was written in but it did seem obviously she doesn't depict anything particularly you know graphic but the way that she will write about them having this sexual relationship that's also an emotional relationship but not a stable relationship no um, I thought it was quite brave for the for when it because it was, was it in the 50s it was written I, I think before then before then so even braver yeah
1: <laughs> and I think um, for me it's just did you not find the ending just awful
0: well I I did um, you so you and someone else had both sort of pre-warned me that it would, it would end badly so it wasn't a surprise I quite enjoyed the ending, actually. I think because I wasn't emotionally connected to them, in that uh, the, I think that made us from sort of my emotional disconnect with um with them. And I didn't care what happened to them in terms of empathy or sympathy. I cared in terms of um, she constructed such a good novel that I was interested, <laughs> but but I didn't care if they were happy or unhappy.
1: So I did care. I cared very much. I don't know. I'm, I just was so swept up in it. And because her description is so amazing, I could just see everything. And I felt like I knew these people. And I wanted to just step in and stop everything. And I couldn't. And it was awful. <laughs> and then I finished and I just sort of lay on the sofa. And just thought, I don't know, I can't do anything. And I just lay there for about half an hour thinking I didn't oh, know what Richard. to do.
0: It. By the way, I've just looked up. 1932 it was written, so very yeah. brave of them. Um, of her, rather. Uh, yeah, that's the, sort of, that's the response I wanted to have, I think. And just in fact I'm in i an online book group where we um discuss all sorts of things uh, to do with books and we have a few acronyms or or initialisms for things that come up a lot. Um the main one we use being HIU for have it unread, because so often we were saying, Yes I've got that but I'm not ready yet. So <laughs> HIU comes up a lot. And for this one I did invent a ADBL adm sorry, A B D L admire but don't love. <laughs> um and I think that's it, I thought I'm just going to keep repeating myself now, I guess, but such such well-drawn characters, so so real, I just don't know why I didn't care about them.
1: It's a shame, really, isn't it? But I suppose you can't help it. Sometimes books are like that. You can step back from them objectively and be like, this is an amazing book, but um, it, it doesn't call to me in any way.
0: Um, which is, I mean, and some books aren't meant to. That, um, something like Ivy Conte is a good example, actually, of, of a writer who I think is brilliant but nobody would care what happened to the people in them or care about them because you're not supposed to whereas in this one i feel like you are supposed to mm. um but t- t- let's talk about other things in it I-, I love the fact that um Emmeline was a travel agent yes. and the way that baron wrote about that firstly just so interesting as a you know to read about what travel agencies were like in the 30s yep. that was great but um but also such a brainwave to make her- I-, I love that she's not this woman who sort of hapless woman who's waiting around in high society for this man to say whether or not he loves her but she is a queer woman and a really interesting queer in fact that reminds me actually my favorite scene in the book um was the one where trip their uh, secretary or stenographer as she is named (laughs) um has that sort of emotional outburst that about him not being treated properly but does as you say, doesn't quite say what she means. Doesn't say all the things that she's thinking. Emily can't work out why she's unhappy. Is trying to apologise, doesn't know quite what for. Trip can't quite work out how to frame what is upsetting her, which is essentially that she's not considered an equal and not getting the sort of fem- feminine confidence that she was hoping she'd get. Um, and it's such a well observed, such a such a clever scene. Um, I think all the things to do with The Travel Agency were, were my favourite bits in the novel, more so than the um, would be, will-they-won't-they they sort of romances.
1: I just... I mean, I agree. I thought that was wonderful. But I just... I mean, the thing that I love about her in all of her books is her her ability to do conversation so well.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: yeah. How there's these kind of, like... People just dancing around each other and everybody's afraid to say what they really think because they're afraid that the person doesn't feel the same way about them or isn't going to give them the answer that they want. And it's this kind of repression that makes the atmosphere of her books so heightened for me and that makes me so invested in them because I'm constantly waiting for someone to say something that's going to blow everything (laughs) out
0: And she gets the, the logic of conversations so well. The fact that what people are replying do, doesn't really follow on from what was said before, but but that is how conversations, particularly emotional conversations, that's how they happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, often novels, it's it's much more, because the author's thought it through, it goes from A to Z very logically, whereas yes, but it does reflect how well people will just say non sequiturs or will say things that don't quite um, follow on and don't quite make sense, but lead the conversation in different directions, etc., that sort of thing. I thought it was really cleverly done. Yeah,
1: she does that. Like, it's, she can express how people don't actually listen to each other.
0: Yes. I think that's
1: great, that people are just waiting to be able to say what they were thinking the whole time and what that other person's saying is not important. Which is brilliant. She's brilliant. Her observation is fantastic. And some of her sentences where she's just describing how the light comes in across the floor or how Mm -hmm. it smells or something, I'm just like, oh, if I could write like that. Hey, <laughs> okay, I would love it.
0: Um, before we talk more about this book or her in general, um could you give us an introduction to The House in Paris?
1: Yes, The House in Paris is a very odd book, um, in terms of its um premise. It's about this little girl called Henrietta, who's eleven, and she is going to stay with her grandmother in the south of France. Um, but she has to change trains in Paris and because she's travelling by herself, her um she it's been arranged that she's going to stay at the home of an old friend of her grandmother's um in paris and um, while she waits for her train but there's this old friend of her grandmother's there's like a it has she, she's like a youngish woman but she's mm. comes across as being very old but she's not i mean she must be in her thirties and she has this mother who's an uh, invalid who's in bed upstairs and he, he, she just kind of had this kind of vision of this darkened room where no one ever goes and this little girl is put into this strange dark house and then this other this um, boy arrives as well he's also there um, to wait for his mother. So this this woman is kind of running this halfway house for children who need to be looked after briefly while other things are happening. And
0: <laughs> I think he's going to meet his biological mother for yeah, the first time. He's going
1: he? to meet his mother for the first time. And then you have this kind of flashback to the past of 10 years in the past where we learn about this boy's mother and this unadvisable love affair that she had and the connection that Miss Fisher, who's the woman who lives in the house, has had with them. And you kind of get this unveiling of just tragedy that's happened to this person. And it's so, the atmosphere is just, you could cut it with a knife. And it's random, but makes, I remember when I started reading the flashback, I was like, what is this? And then always gradually things come together. You're just like, whoa, this is amazing. And how she uses these two children and their relationship with each other. They've never met each other before. And her ability to draw these children and their awkwardness and um, how that's reflected in the awkwardness of the house and everything. It's just brilliant.
0: Yes. I um, was struggling to remember much about it to be honest. So I went back to read my review and then your review, which is lovely as well. Um, and I had remembered that I really loved the section with Leopold and um, Henrietta's, yeah. well, Henrietta. I say uh, the sections, the beginning and the end um, for many of the same reasons that I said about the, f- the first half except um again it's her observation not so much what people are trying to hide because children don't hide as much as adults but just the bizarre the bizarre way in which children who are strangers interact and um, there's a great bit she wrote i'll just read out um, from my review a quote that i put down um with no binary assuring grown-ups present With grown-up intervention taken away, there is no limit to the terror strange children feel of each other. A terror life obscures, but never ceases to justify. There is no end to the violations committed by children on children, quietly talking alone. And that encapsulates, I think, the whole of those sections, essentially. These, like, the children aren't deliberately unkind to each other particularly, but they're very blunt. They will just... They don't care what the other person's thinking. They've not developed empathy yet. So they're just... They're just chatting, but it's sort of devastating to both of them, but also just sort of throw away at the same time. It's really interestingly done. Yeah. Um, and I loved those bits. I found the middle section less interesting.
1: Um, well, I really loved that middle section. And the, it's the kind of depiction of Leopold's mother, Karen, and this illicit relationship she has. Um, and... I mean, I won't say everything because I don't want to ruin it for people reading it. But um, it's it's so tense because it's there's uh, someone else involved in the relationship as well, and it's I just thought it was brilliant and the very the fact that this that Karen was kind of having to be. She's expected to do what what her parents wanted and how she's kind of trying to push out from these expectations. And then the tragedy of her having to then go back and go, turn her back on what she really wants and do something else instead. And I just thought it was brilliant. No, I've said that really vaguely, but I can't say more because then it ruins the up. <laughs>
0: Well, I have to say, I went back to your, I uh, say, so I went back to your review and was reading it. You were saying, "Oh, well, I won't give away the plot, but it all comes in. I was thinking, I can't remember what happens. I still don't know. <laughs> but, but I'm sure it worked out very cleverly. <laughs> I think because my, my interest and the th- things that have stayed with me is the atmosphere of that house in Paris. The fact that they were in this wonderful city that they're de- that just, that Henriette's to see, but she never can because they can't leave that house. Yeah. And in some ways, a bit like To the Lighthouse. There's always that sort of possibility that they will go and then they don't. Yeah. Although, well, obviously, in the I guess they do eventually. But, you know, that sort of um, prison that children are put into if adults decide they decide that they will be, and that sort of helplessness of children. Um, yeah,
1: I think that's something that comes across the most: the fact that as a child, you can't do anything unless an adult decides that you can. Mm, and, mm. you know, you can have all these things, and your day hinges on whether the whim of the person who's looking after you... And I think that's, but also those children are utterly reflected in the lives of the adults around them as well. And I think that for me was the most kind of distressing thing about the book, because we think of of adulthood and certainly the children think of adulthood as being this place where you can do exactly what you like. But the two women in that house are just as trapped as they are. And I think it's really kind of a powerful book about the prisons we all put ourselves in, I suppose.
0: Hmm. So, are any of her books cheery?
1: Well, um,
0: <laughs> no, not really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I think, do you know what? She's a very realistic writer and I think she kind of, she shows life as it is and she's not afraid to. There are moments for you, Simon.
0: Yes, I think this reminds me of um, it, something I thought I was writing a blog post about years ago of I think it's a shame that so often observation of human nature ends up with it being, um, unpleasant. I think that's one of the things I, I think I read actually in my review of Gilead, um, the fact that she, Marilyn Robinson shares Bowen's ability to just observe human nature and human behavior very closely and accurately, but doesn't always conclude that it's unpleasant. <laughs> <laughs> um, whereas, I mean, there's nobody evil in these books for sure, and there's nobody even particularly um, well, Marky's quite dislikable There's no one, no one abominable, um, and yet you come away thinking that most of their choices and most of their actions are motivated by negative things.
1: <laughs> yeah, she's not exactly uh, an optimist about human nature, um,
0: no.
1: and that's I think also that's one of the reasons why, as much as I admire her books, like you said, I'm never, strangely, in a rush to read another one. Mm. They're kind of things you have to be in a particular mood for. If you're ever so slightly depressed or feeling rubbish about yourself, don't read Elizabeth's <laughs>
0: because
1: it won't improve things for you.
0: I think she is interesting to compare with Virginia Woolf, I think, uh, as people have done many times, um, in that she, formally, she's very traditional in that she doesn't play around with punctuation or with clauses or anything like that. Mm. But at the same time is, I think, very much a modernist writer in terms of the way that she... The things she's just write about, and the way she presents people, yeah. and, um, that sort of introspection and analysis is kind of is a very modernist trait, isn't it? But um, yeah, it's, it's interesting putting her along other people of the time because I don't. She seems to share things from modernism and from Middlebrow sort of equally in some ways. Not in terms of how good she is. I am not making sort of value judgment there, but just in terms of the sorts of novels she writes.
1: Yes, and I think she kind of evades categorisation which is Mm. I think she hasn't perhaps had the fame or wider readership that I think she deserves
0: yes because she's certainly much fated in sort of academic circles particularly well I think particularly as an Irish novelist which I was reading the introduction to this uh, to the the north um, in the vintage edition I I don't know if I would think of her as an Irish novelist since she only lived there for seven years (laughs) <laughs> uh, I always have some problems with um, well I don't know obviously she writes for writes Ireland sometimes um, I think it's just stems from my, my views of Muriel Spark being always discussed as a Scottish novelist when only one of her you 20-30 know, novels was set in Scotland <laughs> <laughs> it's given me a prejudice for, for describing people primarily as being where they're from if they in fact did not live there and didn't write about it but, yes because um, I don't think, because he, he describes this as one of the great Irish novels about England and I don't think she's writing about it as an outsider She's yeah. write, she seems to be writing about it very much as an insider
1: Yeah, no, I, mean, I don't think she particularly had a strong sense of, of being of, of being Irish and therefore being different, I don't think that was something that preoccupied her um, I'm prepared to be corrected on that by someone who's more of an expert but I don't really <laughs> I haven't read anything that she's you know was staunchly um, Irish and felt that she was expressing some kind of Irishness through her novels.
0: Yes, maybe the last September that was obviously Personally that I found
1: find yeah. the sweetest of her books.
0: Oh well, that gives me hope <laughs> since it was the one I liked least. Yeah. Um uh, which would you which is your favourite of her books. Is it is it to the north?
1: I do love To the North the most, I think, but I also really like Friends and Relations, which seems to be often falls out of print, which is a bit frustrating. Um, But it's a very, very interesting book, and I loved it very much.
0: I think I've got a copy of it, but I believe Anita Brookner also wrote a book called Friends and Relatives. So I may be thinking of that. (laughs) Hmm.
1: Confusion. I'm sure you're, well, you've got that library thing, haven't you?
0: Well, I have. I could check straight away. In fact, bear with me at one moment.
1: <laughs> Has Simon got the book or not?
0: This is such a tense moment, everyone. I feel like this is a game show in the making. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see which poem books I have in general. Um, it's loading. Oh, I do have friends relations. I also have The Little Girls, A World of Love, The Demon Lover, The Heat of the Day, um, and the ones we've discussed.
1: The Heat of the Day is also incredible.
0: I've never heard of A World of Love. I must have bought it at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I haven't
1: read that one. I think it's one of her later novels. I I do have The Little Girls, but that was also a very late one. I think she wrote that in the 70s. I haven't read it. Um, and Demon Lover, I think, is short stories.
0: Yes, it is, yes. Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, I will certainly keep reading her. I think... I think part of what I get from her does is based on my expectations. Mm. Um, if I'm expecting to read a very fine novel and not particularly connect to it, <laughs> then I'll be okay. <laughs> and maybe she'll surprise me.
1: Well, I think, you know, she likes to keep people at a distance. I think that is her style as well. So there's a certain amount of stuff you have to wade through to get to the characters, which... Yeah. You know, for some people it works, and some people it doesn't. For me, it really does. But like I say, I have to be in the mood.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it sounds like you've already made your choice between these two.
1: Yes, I have.
0: And indeed, I'm going to agree with you. Um, I, I did. It didn't because I think because in Hassan Paris* that middle section I, I didn't love as, the writing as much as the rest. Um, whereas this one, whatever my other. <laughs> bizarre issues with it I thought the writing never failed to be brilliant um, I'm going to pick To the North as well wow we're in complete agreement today Rachel
1: amazing
0: lovely <laughs> um, so yeah, people do you get in touch tell us which you would choose in both in both sections and any um, Bowen novels that you think we should try immediately mm-hmm. um, and if you have any books from 1947 that you think um, I should be on the lookout for the for 1947 Club.
1: So specific. Yes.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> so another great thing about that Library Thing app. I can just type in 1947 and find all the books I have published that year. Oh,
1: so, I, do you know, I have a lifetime membership of Library Thing, but because I give away my books so often, it's never updated, and <laughs> makes the ones that are on there I probably don't have anymore.
0: True. I always add them when I get them, but I tend not to remember to delete them when I get rid of them, so <laughs> it's probably lying about how many books I have. which is you know at least well at least it's more than I've got rather than fewer than I've got so it makes me feel like my book collection is more manageable (laughs) (laughs) Uh, right gosh this has been a long one hasn't it sorry (laughs) (laughs) we had so much to say Um, yeah so I guess that that is the end we will we don't know um, what we're doing next time. No, we don't know what we're doing next time. We were going to plan it, but we didn't. Sorry, guys. Yeah. Um, but until next time, you can find Rachel on Twitter at book underscore snov and me on Twitter at stuck underscore in a book. Oh. Let's let's throw that in there. Great. We
1: need to get <laughs> on See Twitter and time. do something.
0: Yeah, you do right <laughs> now. <laughs>
1: Thanks.
0: See Jeff. you next time, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.